It's good to be here. Good to see you. Good to have some nice weather. And I, I'm not going to jinx it and say that it feels like spring finally, but, but it is, you know. We've had those surprise snows here lately, and that, uh, that'll throw you for a loop. We're going to actually look at an interesting passage today, one we don't look at often enough, because there's some things that make us a little uncomfortable uh, with it. And it comes from the Old Testament and from the book of Ezra. Ezra is a, a fascinating book or a really collection of books. Our Bibles have it as one book, Ezra, and then a separate book, Nehemiah. And some Bibles, depending on uh, whether you're looking at Jewish scripture or even uh, Bibles from the Roman Catholic Church or different periods of time, might have uh, Ezra as two, three, or four books combining Nehemiah and some other uh, writings which we don't have in our Bibles. Uh, Because Ezra is such an important figure in the history of God's people, particularly in the Old Testament, as he becomes, along with Nehemiah, uh, one of the great teachers of the Old Law. It's really easy to forget the arduous story of the law and God's people because they are a people on the move. They are a people who are nomadic. Uh, They are moving toward a promised land. And when they arrive there, there are some things that take place and some choices that are made that eventually lead to a lot of turmoil and destruction. And, you know, our country has only been around for like 250 years. And we have our founding documents uh, under very thick glass in heavily guarded and protected buildings in our nation's capital. If you want to go see them, you can go see them. If you want to read them, you can read them. And you can know our story, our laws, and what makes us who we are. But thousands of years, and over the decades and centuries and generations, particularly in a time where the preservation of documents was a lot more difficult, things get lost. And the Jewish people, God's people, the Israelites, they lost their law for a time. They forgot about it. They ignored it. They didn't care to copy it down and preserve it. And it was lost as the generations passed. And then there came a time where it was rediscovered and where they remembered it. And it was then taught. And Ezra is one of those figures that as the Israelites come out of captivity and and Jerusalem is restored... And, and many of the Israelites return, he is one of the people who's key in reteaching the law and really probably helping to flesh out some of the law with his own writing. Uh, Ezra probably did a lot of work with, uh, in, in manuscripting and copying and, and adding to and consolidating some of the books of the law, but he was one of the great teachers. And so when we read Ezra, We see a man who is teaching, who is very, very concerned about the law, who is very dedicated to God's word and to the teaching of it, but who is very troubled by the choices that his fellow countrymen have made. So we're going to read some of that because it makes us very uncomfortable to read these kinds of things. Some of the law that God gave the people, some of the requirement that he placed on them doesn't fit well in our modern Western context. And so when we read it and we study it and we teach it, we run into a problem. 
because it runs contrary to what we understand to be acceptable socially, and it runs contrary to what we even think God would accept socially. It seems arbitrary, it seems strict, and that's a best-case scenario, and worst case, it has a lot worse connotation to it. But let's look in chapter 9 of Ezra. Ezra says in verse 1, Now, when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands according to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, and the Moabites, the Egyptians and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. And Ezra's response to this is equally as extreme to our own eyes. When I heard about this, is verse 3, I tore my garment, my robe, and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. And then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. Why is Ezra so troubled to the extreme, to the point of tearing his hair and ripping his clothes, traditional outward expressions of grief and of, and of uh, angst? It's because of the behavior he has seen and the choices he has seen in his fellow people. And it comes back to this ordinance of intermarrying between different groups. Now, certainly, this kind of language and this kind of idea has been used incorrectly to discourage certain things that people did not want to see socially. And we have had difficult times in our own country's history dealing with the diversity of our country, its racial makeup, and what that means for relationships. Um, that, is always, that, that has in the past been a difficult thing. In some places, it still is a difficult thing. And it has nothing to do with scripture. It has nothing to do with what the Bible teaches. But some people have weaponized it, and we have to be accountable to that and recognize that and understand it. But we need to know what this teaches for the reason it teaches it. Because otherwise, it is a troublesome passage. I would love to live in a world where I could accept God's word, accept scripture, accept the Bible, and, and never have to worry. If someone said, well, this is troublesome, I'd say, well, I don't really care, you know, and just move on. I'd love to not have to think about it. The problem is there are some things in scripture that people can point to and exploit to try and criticize God and those who follow him. And we do need to understand where those troublesome passages lie and how to handle them properly. And particularly in the Old Testament, because there are some laws that God has for his people that don't make a lot of sense to us. But if we understand the purpose of God's law then, what it teaches us today, I think we can better answer those criticisms and respond to those things. First of all, we do understand that there is culture that is woven into the writings of Scripture. It's absolutely true. The culture of the time and the culture of the people is woven in. And we have to accept that some of that exists. The other thing we have to accept is that the purpose of God's law was different for the, in the time of the law of Moses and the time of, 
the exile and the return to Jerusalem than it is on the other side of the cross. The life of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection changed the nature of our relationship with God. It gave us access to God. And that was a point in time that God knew was coming, that he was planning for, and he had to make sure everything was set right for it to happen. Now imagine this story broadly, what God is trying to do with the Israelite people, with his people. He has got to get them essentially out of Egypt to a place that he has designated for them, and he's got to make sure they survive that they remain faithful, and that the stage is set for the Messiah to come. And the law of Moses in the Old Testament is just that. It is God's design to keep his people alive and faithful until Jesus can come. And what we learn from that law, there are some things that are beneficial for their livelihood, beneficial for their health, beneficial for the stability and the preservation of their faith. And to make it something more than it is can be deconstructive to faith. But that's what people seek to do by looking at the old law and saying, well, this, this isn't the kind of God I would serve. He has these crazy arbitrary rules. He's, he seems to be bent on wrath and destruction at every turn. God needed to keep his people alive until Jesus could come. And part of that had to do with their interaction with the world around them. That if the Israelite people, if God's people, were to take the promised land, to take Jerusalem, to go around to the surrounding regions, the surrounding areas, and find people who did not fit their culture, who did not fit their faith, who worshipped other gods, who had other practices, and they were to combine and intermingle with them, it would be detrimental to the preservation of the culture into which Jesus must come. That is difficult language for us to hear today because we hear the voices of past generations that speak against things like interracial relationships and marriage. And it's unfortunate that we conflate the two things because that's not the case. God does not condemn interracial relationships. He does not teach or promote through his law or through the teachings of Christ the purity of any one race over another. But we have to be prepared to answer those criticisms. And as we see Ezra's grief, understand his grief was not at the fact that his race was not being preserved. It was the fact that the people had strayed from God because they allowed the world in to a sacred place. It's not really about nationality, ethnicity, or race. It was about the preservation of a law and of a faith, and it's about having a relationship with God and not with the world. Let's read what Ezra says as he responds in a prayer of confession, beginning in verse 5. At the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God and said, O oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, 
to the sword, to captivity, and to plunder, and to open shame as it is this day. Ezra is throwing himself before God's mercy to confess that the reason that the people have suffered, the reason they have lost touch with their God, and the reason they have been carried off into captivity and isolation and exile and destruction is because they failed to preserve as sacred the relationship with God and do what was necessary to keep it safe. Our world is very different today. Our world is different because we have this we have this society and this culture around us, particularly here in the United States, where we have a lot of diversity, not just in um, ethnicity and not just racially and or culturally. We have a lot of diversity in faith. We have a lot of diversity in ideas, and we're exposed to those things a lot. And there's really no escaping it. We have a tribal culture in many ways, but we do not operate in tribes and nations as they did. And so what God had intended was for his people to remain his people and to build around them a bit of isolation and separation from the world. Why? Not because God didn't love the other people or care about the other people or that they were less because of their heritage. It was because God had something in mind for this group. And the door would one day be open, but it was not yet time. God is preserving his people. And they failed to be consistent in that preservation. They had a covenant relationship with God, which they broke by intermingling with the world around them as he had told them not to. And their sin was not because the other nationalities and the other races around them were less than, it was because they failed to see God as greater than. Now today we live in a world where a lot of the ideas of division and walls between groups of people are being deconstructed and torn down, and that's always been a good thing, and it will continue to be a good thing. The question is not who are we allowed to interact with. The question is to whom do we belong? Oftentimes in scripture, it is described that we are married to Jesus Christ, that the church is the bride of Christ. We are in a covenant relationship, a bonded, committed relationship with Jesus Christ and through him to the Father. We are not to have flirtations with the world. We are not to engage in relationships with the world. Does that mean we can't interact? No. We live in this world, and we have to interact in this world, and we have to spend time around people with whom we do not share faith. It's where does your heart lie? Where does your uh, commitment lie? That's the question that the Israelites faced, and they failed to answer correctly. We face it every day, and we have to answer it in the affirmative that we are dedicated and committed to our first love, to Jesus Christ. It is not about ethnic purity or racial purity or any other kind of cultural purity. It is about a purity of purpose, the purity of the calling that we have received, and not to let the world dirty that purpose. Let's not get dirty in the world. Let's not be made impure by the world. But to continue in the purity of the purpose, we still must heed the call of Ezra as he encouraged the people to return to that purity. And it was purity in their context for their purpose. Our purity 
is to guard ourselves, guard our church, guard our community from letting the world into places that are sacred. And our relationship with God is the most sacred among those things. But we let the world in all too often. Let's look at the ways we do that. Go to, turn to Matthew, to the verse that Christian read for us. If you go to Matthew chapter 22. <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 37, we have Jesus being asked this question. Well, actually, we'll back up to verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, which is the great commandment uh, in the law? So he's asking, I want you to give me the number one, the top thing. And Jesus responds to him, as Christian read for us, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. How do we let the world in? How is it that we sully the purity of our purpose? Well, one of the primary ways is to ignore this commandment that Jesus reminds us of. That we put God first. Now, I, I, growing, up, growing up, we always heard this little uh, teaching device, joy, J-O-Y, Jesus then others, then yourself. I, I think I've probably come to a different understanding of that. I understand what people mean. But Jesus says, love others as yourself. He doesn't say you have to love others more than yourself. He's not asking us to destroy ourselves or be harmed or taken advantage of. And I think that's important because I think too many people have beaten themselves down uh, for the sake of others. That's not what Jesus asks. Jesus asks, that we love God first, and that we care for others in the same manner as we would care for ourselves. That's a very important distinction. We have things hardwired into our being that are a matter of self-preservation. Uh, we hear loud noises and we flinch. Uh, we see uh, bright lights and we blink our eyes. Our pupils dilate. We try to protect ourselves, to watch out for ourselves uh, almost instinctively. But in other ways, we put ourselves first. That is the nature of man, and it is something God or Jesus calls us to put aside, to put God first in everything we do, and then to place others in a position equal to, at the very least, the care and concern we have for our own self-preservation. Do you care about having something to eat today for lunch? Then you should care about others having something to eat today for lunch. Do you care about being able to pay your bills on time this month? You ought to care about other people being able to pay their bills on time this month. The things that you care about for yourself, you should extend to care for others. And one of the ways that the world gets in, one of the ways that we let this world into sacred places is by putting ourselves first. When Jesus has said, that is not the place for us. That is the place reserved for God. God comes first. And yet we allow the world to bring its impurity into our thinking by putting ourselves first. Go back a little bit to Matthew chapter 6. If we go back to Matthew chapter 6, let's read what Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount about what's important in life. 
In Matthew chapter 6, he speaks to some of these ways that selfishness invades our, our life. Starting in verse 16, he says, Whenever you fast, you're not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they've received the reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that the fasting will not be noticed by men, so that you're, uh, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, we tend to have this real uh, problem with Scripture because... For the sake of organization and the ease of reference, we have put chapters and verses in there, and that's been around for about a 1,000 years, and it's great. I'm glad we have it. It makes it really easy to do my job. But one thing it causes us to do all too often is to break up segments of Scripture and deal with them individually. We have heard sermons, and we have heard Bible lessons, and we have read things about the passage we just read, fasting and praying and why it's important to do it a certain way and to not be doing it to be seen of men. But do you ever connect that passage with what comes there in verse 19? Because Jesus says, don't store up for yourself treasures uh, on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Do we connect verse 19 to the three verses before it? Not often enough. We deal with these things as separate points in some long sermon that Jesus is giving. But they connect. They connect. Because what are we doing if we do acts of spirituality to be seen of men, to be seen of the world around us? Are we not storing up treasures on earth? Yeah, we read that. Of course, that's material things. Don't put your faith in material things. right? Don't worry. Don't, don't think that uh, your life and its outcome is going to be determined by how much you have in the bank. I understand the uh, warning against materialism in verse 19. But the connection that comes with the verses prior to it is this. When we do things to receive the glory and honor of man, the glory and honor of the world, the glory and honor of our society and our culture, we are accepting that at the expense of the honor we receive by serving God. We are storing up treasures on this earth in this life not just in, in uh, material possessions, but in our societal positioning, in our prestige, in the honor we get from mankind. Jesus is warning us against being tied to this earthly life, whether that be material things or whether it just be the attention and praise of the world around us. Because guess what? When you are seeking that attention and praise from the world around you, you're going to get it. You're going to get it. The question is, at what cost will that come? And Jesus warns us, if you want to seek the approval of man, you can do that and you'll get it. You'll get lots of praise, but that's all you're going to get. Because you will be beholden to those who offer you the accolades and the praise and the honor, and you will forsake the honor of having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You will receive your reward in full. How do we let the world into the sacred places? How do we uh, adulterate and, and deteriorate and allow impurity in to sacred relationships as the Israelites did? Well, by putting ourselves first in Matthew chapter 22 and by seeking to build our own kingdom rather than his kingdom, as we see in Matthew chapter 6. We build a kingdom based on us, on what we are doing and how we look. 
We are not seeking to build the kingdom of the Lord. That's how we let the world in. You could have the attitude of the rich young ruler. And, you know, it might be for the best that we don't know his actual name. He kind of he escaped in that one. There's a few people in Scripture, by the way, that we see them come in and we have names for them. We have the rich young ruler. Um, kind of nice that his name was protected, uh, was, was changed to protect the innocent there because he doesn't come off looking so good when that story's over, right? You know? Uh, on the other hand, you have the Ethiopian eunuch. And I feel like if I was going to be referred to in Scripture for all eternity, uh, that's not the name I would choose, but that's how we know him. We could have just gone with the queen's treasurer because that, that would have probably been a better name. I'm sure he would have appreciated it a little more. But we have the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler is asking a question of Jesus. And what is that question he's asking? I mean, boil it down. What is the essence of the question of the rich young ruler? Give me the recipe, right? Tell me what I need to do. I do all of the things you've already asked. You know, remember Jesus gives him a list. He says, I got that, did all that already. Come on, let me in on the secret. Give me the one thing that I'm lacking. What the rich young ruler is, is saying is, I'm a pretty good person. I think I'm good enough. I think I can just be, follow the rules, follow the recipe, do the program, and I'm okay. The complacency that the world encourages by eroding our focus, our laser focus on the teachings of Jesus Christ is one of the primary ways that impurity is brought into our sacred relationship with Jesus. We put ourselves first. We build our own kingdom. We tell ourselves we'll just be good enough and that'll be fine. No, we are something more. We are something different. We are a people who are set aside by God, just as the Israelites were. And that's how I like to think about the Old Testament. That's how I like to look at it personally. I look at it as an example of the nature of God and how he interacts with his people. I believe that the Old Testament and those stories are very instructive for who we are to be today as Christians. Now, we don't have to, you know, we can wear uh, synthetic fabrics and we can eat bacon and, and, and we, we have a lot less restriction on how we're to live in the, in the Christian age. And I'm thankful for that. And the reason we have that is because Jesus has come. The promise has been fulfilled. The great commission has been given and Jesus sits at the right hand of God with his task done. But to get there, God had to make some rules for his people. And we can learn from those rules, not because we are still required to keep them, but because they tell us the nature of God and of our own hearts. We have a sacred bond, a sacred relationship, a commitment through Jesus Christ to Jehovah God, and we must not let the world dirty that relationship. We must not let the impurity deteriorate our commitment. We must maintain a purity of purpose. The world around us will try to make us self-centered and self-focused. But we are, as the Israelites were, set apart, set aside, pulled out, called. And it's not by ethnicity, it's not by racial purity, but it is by blood that we are set apart, the blood of Christ. We are his chosen people.
But we are not meant to stay exclusive in that, in that label because we are his chosen people to be his hands and feet to carry the message and invite the rest of the world in. Open up the doors and bring in those who are seeking and who are hurting and who are lost. To do that, we must put God first above all things and have as much concern for the people around us as we would for ourselves. Don't let the world in. Continue to remain committed. And if we can help you in any way do that, or encourage you or pray for you, or if you need to accept Jesus Christ in baptism, we want to offer this opportunity for you to do that as we stand and while Dan leads us in a final song.